Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to continue on with the Beatitudes today. <clears throat> this message primarily is going to deal with um, the lack of mercy, purity, and the ten- tendency to be contentious that a lot of humans experience. I know I do. And Jesus is going to deal with those things in the message today. It's called Happy Christians, Part B. And uh, we learned why it's called Happy Christians last time. Last time, the main point was really to be blessed, which we learned the word means happy, essentially. To be blessed, we must realize we have nothing to offer God spiritually. Uh, we are to mourn over our sinful condition and that, the, and that of the world. And we are to intensely desire the perfect righteousness of God above everything else in our lives. We learned that last time. That's the first Beatitudes um, in Matthew chapter 5. Today, Jesus is going to give a description again of, he's continuing on the same message, same Sermon on the Mount, and, and the same section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He's going to give a description of the life of the happy Christian. Now, happy Christians are merciful, they're pure in heart, they're pure in heart morally and in their commitment to Jesus, and they are actively engaged in the ministry of peacemaking. Those are three things we're going to see today. Merciful, pure in heart, morally, and in their commitment to Jesus, and are actively engaged in the peacemaking ministry. And you might say, well, I really need a word from the Lord today, so what? Well, guess what? You can live a happy, blessed life, right? You can live a happy, blessed life, and it's found in what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now, if you didn't catch last week's message, I invite you to check it out, calvarymasoncity.com. All of our sermons are being loaded up there. We have a new website. But you might want to catch up on that one to see kind of where we're at today. I'm not going to do too much review of it. So, this morning, continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, referred to by some as the Christian Manifesto. Really, this is how Jesus wants his people to live, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's Jesus teaching to his followers how they should live as members of his kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not a message about how to be saved, but rather about how people shall live. It's not a message for unsaved people. It's impossible for anybody to live the way Jesus says, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit uh, living inside of them and in and through them. It's a message about how people should live. The message last time began with the Beatitudes, and who remembers kind of how a good way is to understand that word? Anybody remember? Real loud. Beatitudes. Amen. Good job. All right. The Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that we should, we should be like this. This is how Jesus wants us to view life and how to live. Verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 5 describe the blessed life. Now, Remember we discovered that that word blessed, you know, it means truly happy. That was the simplest way to uh, reduce it down. It has the idea of wholeness, of joy, of well-being, of happiness. It means to be truly happy. And I hope that you were thinking about that last week because I asked that question, are you truly happy, right? And hopefully you thought about that in, in relation to the message that we had last week. And maybe is some of, am I lacking some happiness and some wholeness in life because Really, I'm not living like Jesus says, you know, and and he offers this and he wants you to live like this. And so hopefully you reflected on that. Jesus has been telling believers how to live a deeply, profoundly, whole, happy life. 
First of all, we saw last time, it begins with a genuine encounter with God. And this encounter with God results in me being poor in spirit. Like Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, like Peter said, depart from me. I'm a man, of, I'm a sinful man. Get away. You know, when you have this real experience with God, you can't help but see yourself in that light and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how wicked and sinful I am. And that was the first beatitude, being poor in spirit. It's not talking about financially poor. It's talking about seeing the poor state that I have. I have nothing to offer God where it comes to my salvation. There's nothing I can bring to him uh, to merit salvation. Number two uh, of the message last week, that, that poverty of spirit then leads to a mourning over my sin. I'm saying, oh my gosh, I'm undone. I can't believe uh, I mourn over my sin and over the sin of the world around me. I'm not indifferent to the sin of the world. This affects my heart because it affects Jesus, right? And we're becoming like him. Then this produces a meekness, and we talked about how meekness is not weakness, but it's power under control. So poverty of spirit, then mourning over my sin, then it produces a meekness, a humility in my life. I'm not always asserting myself. I'm not always trying to get my way. I'm letting other people get the blessing, you know, and that's, that's the process that we went through last time. And then the fourth beatitude contained a promise. It said that if you'll hunger and thirst after righteousness, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. That brings us to where we are today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. And that's all we're going to look at today. First of all, the merciful. This speaks to man or a woman that has been the recipient of God's wonderful mercy. So right away, blessed are the merciful. This is speaking to those um, that have received God's mercy. You see, by nature, by birth, all of us are born in sin and therefore we're deserving of death, right? And the fact that God has brought us to the place of poverty of spirit, he's brought us to the point of mourning over our sin, of becoming gentle and meek towards him especially and others, and then hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that is God having mercy on us. You see, because rightfully, legally, we're deserving of death, right? Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, bear false witness, sinful anger, all the different things that we do, every sin, all of our sin, legally, we're deserving of death right out of the mother's womb, right? says in the psalmist, in sin my mother, you know, conceived me. It was, David was talking about the nature of humankind. We're all born in sin because Adam and Eve sinned and we've all sinned. So it's a just, righteous thing if God was just to wipe us out, right? But what he's done is he's given us mercy. He hasn't given us what we rightly deserve. Instead, he's given us mercy. He brought us to poverty of spirit. We mourn over our sin. We're gentle and meek towards him. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now he says, if that's the truth about you, if you've come to this place and you've experienced God's mercy, then be merciful, right? Since they have been the recipient of God's mercy, they will be merciful to others. Blessed are the merciful. What is mercy? Well, Jesus illustrated this well in a parable that he told uh, one day when the religious rulers were testing him. There was uh, a man on the road, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And uh, this guy, um, I don't know if you read about this, he was actually mugged along the way, and he was left for dead. I mean, he was beaten, he was robbed, and, you know, this guy was left for dead. And it just so happens that here comes a priest, right? And a priest comes, uh, and he sees this going on on the other side of the road, and he says, you know what, I'm just going to keep on going. I'm just going to mind my own business. And he goes on the other side of the road of this guy. He's like left for dead here, right? Well, next, by chance, here comes a Levite, another, you know, of the family, the priesthood of the Israelites. And this guy does something a little different. You guys know what he does? He comes over and he actually looks at the mugged guy, the guy that's bleeding to death there. And he actually looks at him. But then you know what he does? He, he goes ahead and goes on the other side of the street too. But then a Samaritan comes. Now, Samaritans are hated by the Jews. And so you appreciate Jesus' illustration. He's talking to these religious Jews and he's, he's illustrating what mercy is. And he says, but a Samaritan comes. They'd be like, oh, a Samaritan. Well, what does the Samaritan do? He comes to the guy. He dresses up his wounds. He pours antiseptic on it. He takes the guy to a hotel, right? And he goes to the hotel and he puts down his credit card and he just says, hey, put everything on my bill and take care of the guy. Let him stay here until he's mended up. I'll come back and I'll square up with everything. And Jesus says, well, which one of them was his neighbor? In other words, which one showed mercy here? You see, this is an illustration of mercy. Obviously, the priest didn't do the right thing, right? He just went, he didn't even go on the same side of the street. But the Levite, he's a little closer to a lot of people today. He goes and he looks at the needs, but yet he doesn't do anything about it, right? Now, the merciful are people that not only look at the needs, but they also do something about the needs, right? James says, what does it do if somebody comes to your door and, you know, and they're hungry and you say, be warmed and be filled and you don't give them the things, Right? And that's the issue of mercy. Mercy not only feels bad for the things that are going on in the world, but mercy goes that extra step and does something to meet the needs. Another aspect of mercy is forgiveness. So first of all, it's not just feeling bad. You know, blessed are the merciful. They're the ones that actually do something about the needs, right? They alleviate the pain of others, acts of mercy. Mercy also has another aspect, and that's the aspect of forgiveness. And Jesus illustrates this one very well also in a parable that he uh, teaches. He, he teaches about this guy that, that he's a master and he has a servant that owes him about a year's worth of wages, right? And this is a lot of money. We're talking to a lot of us, maybe, you know, $50,000 or less, you know, North Iowa. I don't know. We're talking about a year's worth of wages. And so what he does is he says, look, I'm going to go get this guy. You know, it's time to collect. And he brings him in and he says, okay, and, and in this day it was common if you had a debt, you'd get sold into slavery until you paid the debt off, right? Common practice then. And so the guy says, look, you owe me a year's worth of wages. I'm going to bring you in and I want, I'm, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your wife and your kids, and you're going to be, you know, until every penny's paid, you're going to pay. And you know what this guy does? He comes in and he falls down before his master and he says, I don't have anything to pay with, but I tell you, I, be merciful on me, I will pay you every dollar, every penny of it. Right? And so the master, what he does is he lets him go. He says, he says, you know what? I'll forgive the debt. And he lets him go. Now, that guy that he let go, he's walking down the street. He's going down Federal, right? And he's walking down by the city hall. And he comes, and he's by the city park there. And a guy comes up to him that owes him 20 bucks. And you know what he does to him? He grabs him by the throat, and he starts choking him out. He's like, you're going to pay me everything that you owe me, Right? And he, and he throws him into the debtor's prison over 20 bucks. Now, this isn't great, right? So here's what happens. The master that forgave the debt, he hears that this is all going on. And he goes, you know what? Call that guy back here. 
And he says, you know, I forgave you this huge debt. Then you turn around and you go and choke this dude out for 20 bucks. He says, you know what? You should have been merciful like I was merciful, but you weren't. And so I'm going to throw you in prison now. And in fact, it's more extreme now. He says, I'm going to throw you over to the torturers (laughs) to pay that debt, right? Now, here's what Jesus says at the end of that. He goes, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Now, that's a strong statement. See the, see the idea there? God has forgiven me of such a huge debt of sin that who am I to go around and not forgive other people? And Jesus says, if you don't forgive other people, the same bad thing's going to happen to you. <laughs> you know, that's a strong warning. So mercy has another aspect, not only the taking care of needs, not just feeling bad, but doing something. It also has the unforgiveness element, uh, the forgiveness. Mercy is displayed in forgiveness. Now, if you're holding grudges here today, and I know this could be a sensitive subject for some of you, if you're holding grudges, unforgiveness in your heart, being harsh and critical, you're not being merciful. Now, it says, look at the promise, though, to these guys, to these gals that are merciful. It says, for they shall obtain mercy. That's a beautiful promise. It is the merciful that obtain mercy. You know, some people are harsh with others, with their friends. Some people are harsh with coworkers, with strangers. Some people are harsh with their spouses. Some people just have a critical spirit of others. Well, Matthew 7, Jesus warns people about this judging of others. And he says that the way that you judge people, that's the way that you're going to be judged, right? So that's a strong, strong warning. You might say, you know what? I'm plenty nice on the outside, but inside I'm really critical and harsh of everybody. You're not being merciful. And guess what? Jesus says you're going to get judged the same way. The same way you judge others, it's going to be judged back to you. That's a strong warning to a lot of us here today. God will be compassionate and merciful towards you if you're compassionate and merciful towards others. I'll tell you what. If I was going to falter, if I was going to err on one side of the, if I was going to fall off one side of the horse or or the other, I would fall off on the side of being overly merciful and forgiving to people because, heck, that's how I want to be treated, right? I mean, God help me. This is not my nature. My nature is to be extremely critical because I think that I find a lot of my identity in like, you know, and and being right, you know what I mean? And so God help me, you know. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And I just want to ask a question, and this isn't really to, I'm not trying to beat up on anybody at all, but. Uh, Jesus' words, I want them to come to bear on us. Are you merciful? Are you actively involved in meeting the needs of others? And are you merciful in your judgment of others? Are you forgiving? Jesus says, happy are the merciful. Number two, the pure, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Two aspects of this purity as well. One, morally pure, internally. Morally pure, internally. Blessed are the pure in heart. The other aspect The first one is morally pure internally. The second aspect is, has to do with the issue of a divided heart. Um, Pure in my devotion to God. So notice Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the pure in actions, right? Because I think why he says it is because you can have some pure looking actions while inside of you, are dead men's bones, like Jesus says to the Pharisees. Like, they looked really great on the outside. They looked very religious. But on the inside, they're harsh. They're critical. They're condemning of people. They're perverted. They're, um, 
angry. They're violent. They're thinking, oh, you know, I'd be nice to somebody's face, but I want to punch them in the face. I don't, you know, or whatever it is. The point is, is you can have a nice veneer while the inside can be completely corrupted. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in actions, right? That's like the Pharisees or, you know, the religious professionals in Jesus' day. They look great on the outside, but the inside was full of uh, corruption and extortion and greed and ranking themselves one to another, arrogance and pride. This hits home because we all know that there's a possibility of being one person on the outside and another person on the inside. And I'll tell you, there's not a lonelier place to be in life than there because nobody knows you and you know nobody knows you. That's a terrible, way to, it's a terrible way to live, right? Now, what does he mean when he's talking about heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. A very simple way to understand this is it's like the internal versus the external. You know, I can be completely pleasant to your face and have something different going on. This is the difference between the internal and the external. This is the core of your being. This is who you really are. Blessed are the pure in the core of their being and who they really are. You say, well, can anybody be pure? Well, that's, uh, we need to cry out with the psalmist that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Well, one day Jesus was being hassled by the Pharisees, and they came up to him and they go, Hey, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And it didn't mean that they didn't wash their hands before they ate dinner, but you guys remember this? What it means is they didn't go through these ritual washings that the Pharisees had developed. And they're all down on Jesus about it. They're just beating up on the disciples. Why don't they wash their hands in the ceremonial way that we do? You know, they're so unpure, un, you know, they're unclean. Well, Jesus, you know, you love Jesus. He turns and rebukes them sharply. And he turns to this multitude around him and he says, you know what? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth, Right. And the disciples, they don't really get that statement. Well, what does he mean? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's not what goes, it's what comes out. And the disciples really didn't get it. So then Jesus explains it further to them. And he says, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of, now listen carefully, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Now, what Jesus is saying here, like the Bible says in many places, is the human heart is wickedly sick and deceitful. Now, if you haven't come to realize that yet, if you've bought into the humanism of the day that humans are primarily good and because of their environment they've become evil, if you've bought into that lie, you're in direct opposition to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, and it's, it, the, the nurture is important too, but Jesus is saying the nature is what's messed up in humans. He's saying out of the heart comes adultery, fornications, anger, violence, murders. Now, the Pharisees had this understanding, like many Christians do today, that purity is primarily wrapped up in what they do externally, but not at all. Jesus says to them, your, you know, your outward look, actions look great, but inside you have rotting corpses, dead men's bones. In other words, they did these purity rituals. They had this religious facade on the outside, while inside they were full of corruption and sin. So what are the pure in heart in this aspect here of morally, internally pure? The pure of the heart are those that have received a new heart when they were born again in Jesus Christ, 
right? Remember what it says in Ezekiel, I'll take out of the heart of stone, I'll put in a heart of flesh. Jesus actually does a heart transplant when you get saved, right? Some of you have had a literal heart transplant. Jesus does a spiritual heart transplant when you get saved. He puts a new nature in you. Paul says, it's not I that live, but Christ lives in me. He says, I'm a new creation in Christ, right? You actually receive a new nature. Now that nature is the nature of God himself, and you have a new nature inside of you that is pure. Now, so blessed are the pure in heart. First of all, it starts with you being saved. If you're not saved here today, you're walking around with that old, dead, corrupt, sinful heart. But here's the kicker. When you get saved and that new nature comes in, you still have that old nature in there, right? Now, you can let that nature win the day by feeding it. For instance, if you have an anger problem, do you always watch angry stuff on TV? Because what you're doing then is you're feeding your anger problem. You're feeding that old, dead nature. Do you have a problem with perversion? Well, are you looking at pornography? Because you're feeding that, right? Do you have a problem with overeating? You you know, whatever it is, go through the whole thing. Um, You're feeding it. Now, so you have this old nature and this new nature. Now, blessed are the pure in heart. They're the ones that what the Bible calls those that walk by the Spirit, right? The pure in the heart are those that are surrendered, submitted to Jesus. They've confessed their sins. They're continually confessing their sins. They're asking God for cleansing. And those are the pure in heart. They have a real sense of God's forgiveness in their daily life. And what you'll notice is this new nature, this, the Bible says that, don't you know you've been given the mind of Christ? This mind of Christ thinks holy, good, pure thoughts. You have that inside of you also. And so blessed are the pure in heart. They're the ones that have received the heart transplant, the ones that are living in no unconfessed sin, the ones that are confessing their sin to the Lord daily and asking him for cleansing. Those are the pure of the heart. Now, there's another aspect to this too where it comes to um, an undivided heart. So first of all, morally, internally pure, your religion isn't just an outward facade. It's actually inside, you're actually love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all these good things, and you're sweet, and you're kind, and you're loving, all these things really inside and not just outside, right? Now, the other aspect, the undivided heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those with a single heart. They have a united heart. This is one who is sincere, who is not double-minded. The psalmist said, Unite my heart to fear your name. This is a person that their mind isn't like split allegiance between, you know, I, I think Jesus is pretty good, but I also think living worldly is pretty, pretty awesome too. This is a person that's not claiming to be in love with Jesus, but yet being in love with the allurements of the world. And he says, blessed are these people. Look at the promise to them. Verse 8, he says, for they shall see God. Now, one day they will literally see God, you know, in heaven. But what this is likely dealing with is they will see God in everything, right? Not in some pantheistic sort of way. Like, I don't believe that we're all God and we're all, you know, and the chair's God and I'm God and the plant is God. That's not what we're saying. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. They, like the psalmist, Psalm 19. What does he start saying in that psalm? Is anybody familiar with it? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. See, the pure in heart are the ones that go outside. They look up in the sky. They see the stars. And they don't just see billions and trillions of years of evolution and all this, you know, all these accidents that made this big blob and who knows what it is and there's no purpose. They don't see that. They see that the heavens declare 
the wisdom and the glory and the handiwork of God. The pure in heart are the ones that can go out into nature and sit there and worship the Lord and be quiet and be still and see God in things, right? The pure in the heart are the ones that see God at work in their church family. They look around, they see God at work. They see God at work in their marriage. They see God at work in their relationships, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Now, the converse is true. The, the other side's true. The impure in heart don't see God in anything, right? The promise here is the promise of an intimate, close relationship with God. Now, some people um, are, are lacking that. You know, they, they don't understand that. They don't have that. They want that. Let me give an illustration that I came across. Well, kind of came across it. So you have this soap, right? That's one of the particular brands of soap claims to be pure, right? It has no pure. In fact, my wife has to use the, you know, certain type of body soap because you know, or skin sensitive and stuff that has, you know, junk in it, you know, it doesn't work well with her. Like, for instance, if she was to use my body wash, you know, she'd get a rash from it. She needs the stuff that's just pure. Now, the stuff that I use, it's still soap. It still cleans you. It's still clean, but it isn't pure, right? Now, there are Christians that may be clean in the sense that they're saved, but yet they're not pure. Right? There's a difference. Now, so somebody would say, well, why don't I see God? And why don't I have a close, intimate relationship with him? Well, could it be that you're not pure in heart? Are you saying I'm not a Christian? No. But has your vision been blinded by a bunch of perfumes and additives? I mean, you're still clean. You're a Christian, but you're not pure because your mind's polluted with all kinds of garbage. You know, you're, you're sitting in front of a television or your phone and you're letting worldliness, you know, pollute you. You know, now, man, I got a phone. I got the TV. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to come down on anybody, but l- listen, I know in my own life, when I'm not living this experience of seeing God and everything and being joyful and being blessed, a lot of times it has to do with because I've just polluted my mind, Right? I think it's a really fitting illustration. There are many Christians don't experience closeness with God, see Him at work in anything, nature, their church family, their Bible reading, in their daily life, in their marriage, in their parenting. Those who are defiled in heart, perverse, lustful, covetous, worldly, they don't see God in much of anything because sin has a blinding effect on a person. It really does. Sin blinds. When you get leprosy, the first thing to go is your like nerve endings, your senses. Have you ever heard like, like lepers, like a lot of times they're missing the end of their fingers and stuff like this, but the historians record, they say a lot of the times the reason people, they've got burns all over themselves and they're missing fingers, it's because while they're sleeping at night, the rats would come up and just chew the end of their finger off, just gnaw the end of it off. But because you have leprosy, you can't feel it. It's like a deadening effect. That's how sin works in your life. It's deadening. It's blinding, right? There are people today that are so spiritually dead all this stuff just bounces right off of them. No concern for anything. They have a hardened heart. They're blinded by their sin. They don't even hear any of this. They don't hear what the Spirit says to the church anymore. They don't hear the voice of God. But he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, number three. 
the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, notice it doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. It's easy to, well, it's not easy for me, but I mean, for some people, it's easy to be very peaceful, but still be very sinful and selfish. So it doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. Some people are peaceful just because they're absolute codependent pushovers, you know. They're not peaceful inside, but they are on the outside to everybody. Oh, that's such an easy, agreeable person. No, it's just because you're their God and they're trying to appease you, you know. Well, it doesn't say blessed are the peaceful. It says blessed are the peacemakers. Now, a peacemaker is one who actively overcomes the evil in this world with good. One who actively overcomes evil with good. You know, God is the ultimate peacemaker, isn't he? He really is. Because of sin, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that there's a hostility between man and God. If you run into a person today that's not saved or not walking in the Spirit, they're in hostility with God. Now, especially a person that's not saved, they're objects of God's wrath. It says in the book of Romans that the wrath of God has been poured out against all unrighteousness. So because of sin, by nature, we're object of God's wrath. We're at war with him. There's a hostility between us and God. But he took the initiative to fix the relationship. Do you understand that's what your Christianity really about today is you were born as an object of God's wrath. You were under his wrath, deserving of hell, deserving of everything that your sin and my sin um, deserves, right? But because he loved you, he took the initiative to break down the hostility between you and him. That's a staggering thing to think that I was at war with God, but he pursued me to fix the relationship So God's the ultimate peacemaker. You know, he sends his son, right? Think about Jesus on the cross. On one side, he's taken the wrath of of his father upon him. But he's on the cross because he's taking the wrath of man. There's no greater example of a peacemaker, is there? He's taken it from both sides to bring both back together again. This is a peacemaker, Colossians 1, chapter 19 says, It pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. When you see Jesus on the cross, you need to think, what he's doing is he's making peace between God, who is angry at sinful man. If you're outside of Christ, he's angry at you. He's angry at sin. But because he loves you, he sends Christ to make peace between an angry, a God that's angry at sin and a sinful man, sinful woman. And that's what he's doing on the cross. It says right there that he made peace through the blood of his cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, he made peace between you and God in heaven. He's the ultimate peacemaker. Now, if you have peace with God today, this is why when somebody will ask me to pray, they'll say, Pastor, will you pray for my, um, 
for my relative or whatever, they're completely filled with anxiety and worry and all that stuff. And I'll say, are they a Christian? And um, they'll say, no, they're not a Christian. And I'll say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pray first of all that they have peace with God because they need to have peace with God before they can experience the peace of God. That's a really important thing to understand. If you have a family member today and you're praying for them and they're, maybe they're in all kinds of chaos in their life, right? And you're praying, oh Lord, just alleviate this chaos in their life. Well, really, maybe that chaos is all happening so they will be driven to him to have peace with him, you know? Sometimes we meddle in God's plan, right? But it doesn't make any sense for me to pray for you to have like a sense of peace if you're not at peace with the one who made you. That's where it all starts. Now, if you have peace with God today, now you can start to experience inner peace, right? Let me read Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It says this, Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. In other words, if you have not been born again by the Spirit of God, your carnal mind is an enemy of God, right? That's staggering to think about all the years I wasn't living with Christ, my mind was at enmity with God. We were, we were enemies, we were duking it out. You know, some of you know what that is. You wrestle with God to the point to where you figure out how to put him out of your mind. But you know what that is. There's a wrestling going. The carnal mind is enmity with God. James 4, 4 says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, if you don't know what friendship with the world is, I've had to pray about this one a lot and ask the Lord to scam my life. Am I a little too friendly with the things of the world? Because friendship with the world is enmity against God. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Right? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 then says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you have peace with God, the war is over because Christ, you know, you've put your faith in Christ. Now you can experience the peace of God in your life, right? Now, that leads to being able to make peace between men and women, right? Peace with God, inner peace, now peace among men and women. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace between people. I'll tell you what the opposite is. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, it says a bunch of things that the Lord hates. You guys remember that section? Um, one of the things that the Lord hates, I always, when I'm reading my daily proverb, I always read that and go, man, here exactly it tells you what God hates, right? And it's one of the things is it says he hates one who sows discord among brethren. He hates one that sows discord among brethren. So that's the opposite of a peacemaker. In Genesis chapter 13, do you remember? Um, eight, verses 8 through 9, Abraham and Lot had this problem going. His, you know, his family member, and they had too many cows. You know, they had too much livestock, and the land wasn't going to sustain them both. And so um, you guys know what Abraham does? He says this, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. Uh, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. You see, Abraham said, you know, this is going to be a problem, and so what I'll do is I'll humble myself and I'll just say, you pick, you know, you take it, just so there's no strife. Um, how about in Exodus chapter 2, verse 13, Moses uh, goes out and he sees these two Hebrew men fighting with each other, right? And he goes and what does he try to do? 
He goes up and he says, why are you striking your companion? He's trying to make peace between people, right? Proverbs 19.11 says this, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression, right? Peacemakers overlook transgressions, right? I wish I would have known what that meant early on in my ministry. I thought it was my job to look at every transgression. I thought that was my purpose in life, you know, was, and I thought that in the beginning of my walk as a Christian was, was like I was supposed to look at every single one of my sins and just nitpick, right? And let's get it all straight. That's not what Christianity is about. He says this, uh, it's the glory um, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. This is the sort of person that when gossip comes up, hey, did you hear about what's-his-name's doing? Oh, his walk with the Lord is so bad. Let's pray for him. This is a person that overlooks the transgression and isn't always looking to punish somebody because they're not obeying the Bible. You know what I mean? Now, don't get me wrong. We want to try to obey Jesus, right? And we don't want to make light of sin. But, you know, to balance that out, there are people that that's all they're consumed with is other people's sin, right? Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, uh, sorry, Romans 12, 18, whole different section of the Bible. Okay. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with some men. No. You know your Bible here? You got, who knows the Bible? What does it say? All men. That's right. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, there are men and women that are so filled with strife that there's not going to be any living with peace with them. And so he doesn't, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, so as far as it depends on you, don't you be the one that's causing the contention, right? Don't you be the one that's the stumbling block. Don't you be the one that's the fire starter, always pointing out everybody's wrongs, always critiquing and correcting and always doing that stuff. Don't you be the one doing that. Romans 14.1 says this. We're talking about being peacemakers here. These are ways to do it. Um, if possible, as much depends on you, uh, well, yeah, that's the other one, receive one, here's the next one, receive who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In other words, somebody comes in your church and they're having a real hard time about Saturday worship, well, receive them into the fellowship, get them, let them get the Bible teaching going in their life and stuff like that, but don't make a huge deal about this stuff all the time, right? Don't be doctrinally fine-tuning people on these secondary issues all the time and talking about, you know, your views of eschatology and all these different things that I'm so guilty of. I'm talking to myself. The Bible says don't do that stuff, you know? Don't be like that. Receive people into the fellowship, but not to dispute over doubtful things, Right? Romans 14, 19, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Pursue the things that are going to build others up. You're being a peacemaker. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You see what Paul's saying, when Christ came, he reconciled the relationship between you and God. Now he says, God's given you that same ministry as a Christian. You're to go out there and be involved in the ministry of people being reconciled to God. That's what Paul's saying there. Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to endeavor to keep the unity. That signifies, it implies that we could mess the unity up, doesn't it? Because it says, keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't say make it. It says, keep it, right? 
We don't need to all try to rally around anything. We all need to be unified in Christ. And we have a way of messing that up when we make non-essentials the essentials and all this different stuff. Now, 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 24 says, Avoid foolish and arrogant disputes, knowing that they will generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. And he goes on. But he says, uh, ignorant and foolish disputes that generate strife. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And then finally, James 3.18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Talking about peacemakers. Let's ask very specifically how to be a peacemaker. Well, a peacemaker pleads with men and women to be reconciled to God, first of all, then to experience the peace inner with Christ that, they, that comes after that, and then to be engaged in the ministry of peacemaking with others. You know, very practical way that you probably already do this, right? When somebody's wrestling and they've got all these issues in their life, you know, as, you know in biblical counseling situations I've ever been in or ministering to somebody, nine times out of ten, the solution is to trust the Lord. You know, and people don't like to hear that today. They want something else. They want to hear what was wrong with their uncle when they were a kid and why they're the way they are. And they want this like psychology explanation. But a lot of times the answer is truly just, you just need to trust the Lord. And what you're doing is you're putting your own needs and wants above the will of God in your life. And that's why you're in strife, right? So being a peacemaker, a lot of times, and you're probably already doing this, is you're encouraging people to trust God. See, the problem is why you have so much strife inside is because you're at war with God over something. Now, give up. <laughs> Surrender. You're not going to win the war against him. And furthermore, you don't want to win the war against him. He knows what's right. So being a peacemaker, a lot of times, is just asking people to trust God and just give up the war. Surrender. Surrender yourself and stop striving against his calling on your life. Right? God has a calling on your life. You're striving against it. Give up. Do his will above your own. You're being a peacemaker when you're doing these things. Another way to be a peacemaker is you could drop an offense when it's against you, right? You guys remember in 1 Corinthians 16, a brother goes to law against another brother. Um, but, and then even before, even in a Gentile court, you know, Christians taking Christians to court in Gentile courts to decide what's right and wrong. What Paul says is, it's already an utter failure for you that you have to go to law against one another. In other words, your quarrels, you can't figure these things out as Christians, right? <laughs> now you got to go to court. That's, that's his attitude. I can't believe you guys. What? It's an utter failure. But listen to what he says. Why rather do you not accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Wow. No. You yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. In other words, there's this tension, and you know, you're right, and I'm wrong, and we're going to argue, and now we've got to go to court. I'm going to sue you over it. And what Paul says is, you know what? Aren't you, isn't it more of a Christ-like thing just to let yourself to be wronged? Some people don't let anything go by them, do they? Every single time there's a little bit of offense, you've got to hear a whole lecture about it. You've got to hear a story about how they did this to you and how you owe them an apology. And I want to make sure that you apologize about the right thing. Let, let's hear No, that's not a sincere apology. Tell me, you should be apologizing about this. <laughs> right? 
one way you can be a peacemaker is you can just let offenses go, right? And you can help other people to do the same. They come up to you, oh, can you believe it? That guy cut me off at the stoplight over here. Can you believe? Come on, let it go, man. Really? Just let it go. Is that the biggest thing that you've got going in your life? I mean, come on. Maybe, maybe don't be insulting like that. I'm sorry. But really, helping people just to let their offenses go. It's a trick that the devil's put on all of us today is to make us all feel like we're offended, you know? And, uh, oh, I'm so offended that he called me a white person or he called me a black person. or uh, I'm so offended the way he called me this or that. Or, you know, really? You young people, you haven't grown up in any different environment than that. This is like your reality. That is new to society, by the way, only within the last few years. And it's a plot. It's a plot that pe- people are trying to divide us as people. And they're doing it through offense, right? If I can make you feel offended, then I get over on you, right? I can control you. See, if I can make you feel like you've been offended, then I can come around later and pretend like I'm the savior to your offense, right? And that's exactly what's going on in this world. But a way you can be a peacemaker is you can just not be offended. Just stop being offended. Well, my sister did this to me. Hey, look, get over it. You know what I mean? Be like Jesus. Aren't you better to suffer wrong than you are to act in this completely unchristlike way? Well, my spouse did this. I can't believe that she's, you know, get over it. Be a peacemaker, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And then what does it say? They, they should be called the sons of God. Now, when you call somebody the son of something, um, you know, it's like saying that they're like that person or whatever. Uh, James and John, they're the sons of thunder, right? Uh, like me, I'm the son of mini golf, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Why? Because God's the ultimate peacemaker. You make peace with God, you have peace inside then. Then, you, then because you've got peace inside, you're not full of wrath and turmoil and strife. You're starting to be at more peace with others, right? And you're starting to become a peacemaker. <clears throat> the merciful will be given mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers are like their Heavenly Father, just want to conclude today by asking a few questions. Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you taking actions to alleviate other people's pain in this world? This is really convicting to me. Are you forgiving or are you harsh in your assessment of others? Do you hold them to a standard that you shouldn't be holding them to, that you should really leave this behind right now? When we partake in communion, do you want to, you want to leave this behind right now? Are you pure in heart? Is your religion an outward show? Is your heart divided between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? Are you a peacemaker? Are you pleading with people to be reconciled to God? Does the way you talk promote peace or stir up strife? How do you behave when somebody offends you? These are things to think about when we go to the Lord's table here today. Now, if these questions, if you're honest and open, and you're open to the work of the Spirit, these questions should have brought some sort of conviction into your life, right? They should have. If they don't, I I don't know what's going on with you, um, but they should. Now, listen, these questions point out that we fall short. 
extremely. We're not like Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all these things perfectly. And what these questions do then is they should make us run to grace. Run to God's grace. You have to understand, if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd just all be sunk, right? Jesus lived all of these things perfectly. He's merciful. He doesn't pass by the other side of the road. He's pure in heart. There's no guile in him. In all points tempted, yet without sin. He's a peacemaker. At the cross, he took the wrath of God the Father upon himself as he also was in the middle of taking wrath of man upon himself. He's the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between sinful man and a God that hates sin. Christ is the ultimate embodiment of all these things. He tells us today what it is to live a blessed life. It's to be like him. But let us never forget that he's the hero of this story. This message isn't, hey, go home and try harder to be like this all week. No, the message is Jesus is the hero of this story, right? He lived the life that we could never live, and he lived it perfectly. He died the death that we deserve to die, and he took our sin. By faith in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, his death is applied to us, and we're forgiven all of our sin, every penalty of sin forgiven completely because he died the death we deserve. By our faith in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, his perfect righteous record, his perfect righteousness is also applied to our accounts, right? His account is applied to yours. In that state, he says, now, Guys, listen, this is the blessed way to live. This is going on in the new nature in you. Walk by the Spirit and live these things. That's what he's saying. Don't gratify the lust of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and live like this. We cannot live up to the standard perfectly, although he did, but that doesn't mean that we ever throw out the standard, right? We should leave here today mourning over our sin. We should leave here totally aware of God's grace and his love and his chance to grow and to become more like him, right? We've received his salvation, then we ought to live as he lived. Now the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us can help us do just that. And so that's encouraging. So how do you think the world treats people that live like this? How do, how do you think the world would respond to somebody that lives like this? Well, you're just going to have to wait till next time to find out. Lord, we do run to your grace today. We understand that we fall short, but you did it all. We rest in the salvation, Father, that you bought for us at the cross, Jesus, that you bought. Help us to live being merciful, pure in heart, and actively involved in the peacemaking ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.